Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to our service of worship this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin by singing our praises to God together. For the same, we're gathered in your name, calling 
us your glory. Show us, show us your power. Show us, show us your glory, Lord. There's nothing worth more that will ever come
by your presence. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for the work that you desire to do in us and among us today. Give us hearts that are open to you. Give us minds that are ready to learn and to receive from you. And we pray that you will be glorified in our worship. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. Take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here today in worship. So there are a number of inserts in your bulletin this morning. Uh, one of them is about small groups that begin tonight and throughout the week. And as uh, so we want to bring your attention to those as we get back into that again, a regular schedule. Sunday school uh, comes, kick, kicks back in again after uh, the service this morning and will continue. And you'll also notice that uh, there are some inserts about our missions convention that will uh, begin next weekend and extend over a week or so. And Mim Case is going to share just a little bit uh, about the convention and some ways you can participate. On behalf of the church's missions committee, I'd like to invite you all to every single event. Every one of them. The center point... The centerpiece of the convention will be next Sunday morning, right here, in worship, which, where it should be, as Mike Walters will be preaching about being made new. As we think of our conversion experience of being made new in Christ, it's not just that one event, it's that continual work of the Spirit in our lives of being made new continually. The other events will do this continual part as we reach out to the community Again, this year, we're working with three different focal groups. It would be Wellspring Ministries down in Angelica, the county foster care uh, system, and up in Buffalo, Wellspring Ministries. All the events are listed on your insert in your bulletin with more information. The blue sheet is not the one that I need you to sign up for if we need uh, transportation or things. If you'll put this in the offering plate this morning so we know... How many people to anticipate. Thank you very much, and we hope to have you with us. I'd like to invite our ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God from all that he has given to us.
as we continue to contemplate the glory of God revealed to us in Christ, we'll spend some time praying together. If you'd like to come to the altar rail and use this as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we don't take it lightly to ask you to reveal yourself to us. We recognize that it is an awesome thing to stand in your presence, to come before you, and yet, in your loving grace, you invite us. And so here we are, asking that you would reveal yourself to us, that you, would, that you would make yourself known to us and that you would work in us. We come to this moment of prayer, Father, because we are full aware of how much we need you. We know that you alone are the answer to the burdens that we bring. And we come because we know that you are good and holy and you answer our prayers. Father, this morning as we come together, we pray for all who grieve. We ask for your comforting presence upon every grieving heart, from whatever source the grief may come. We pray for all who are wrestling with issues of health. We pray today for Calvin and Laurel Bucher, for Warren Woolsey, for Bill Getty, for Phil Mucher, for Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman, Bev Retz, and for Micah Christensen and Linda Roth, for Dick Gould and Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar, and for others who are on our hearts and our minds, we pray for your healing. Father, we pray for the other kinds of burdens that we bring with us today, uncertainty about the future, Struggles in our relationships. Burdens about situations that seem so big. We ask for your grace in each one. Father, we pray for the ministries of this church. And we thank you for all the ways in which you have blessed us. And we pray especially this morning for the ministry of Junior Church. Thank you for those who have taken upon themselves to to help work with our children, to teach them and to to show them you. And we pray, Father, that this ministry will be blessed by you, not just each Sunday, but throughout the lifetime of our children. Father, we pray for the ministries around us, and we pray today for the Rushford Baptist Church. Thank you for the ministry of this church and for... Pastor Finley, we ask that you will continue to bless them as they minister in Rushford and beyond. Pour out your grace upon them in powerful ways and help them. Father, we pray for the team that's preparing to go to Haiti. For many years, this dental medical team has made this trip and you have done great things to them. And we pray that you will again this year. And that as they go, they may know your power with them and your grace upon them to do more than they could dream or imagine. And Father, we continue to pray for the work around the world of your kingdom. And we give you thanks for uh, making it possible for Alan Shea and his family to return to Liberia. We pray, Father, that you will help them as they raise the final bit of their support. And that as they go, they will sense you with them as they work to help in the ministry there. Father, as we gather each week, we are reminded 
that there are so many places of the world in which our brothers and sisters are not able to worship in freedom as we are. We pray, Father, for for your church that is persecuted and struggling. And Lord, in the midst of these struggles, it's so easy for, for us to turn on each other. And so we give you thanks for what is taking place in Albania. As Christians have come together and representing the body of Christ have apologized to each other for the wrongs they have committed against each other. Father, we pray that you will use this event to do more than we could dream or imagine. And we pray, Father, that their act of unity would spur us on to continued commitment to unity. Lord, we thank you for um, the outreach of, of this church around the world as we move into this missions convention next weekend. Give us hearts for the world, your heart for the world. We pray, Father, on this weekend when we honor Dr. King and for the ways in which you used him. And we pray, Father, that you will continue to help us to, as a nation to move toward peace and reconciliation and restoration of so much that is broken. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your grace upon each of us. We offer these prayers in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Today's scripture is from John 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Please stand and join us as we sing.
A.W. Tozer once said, the thing that comes to our minds when we think about is the most important thing about us. The thing that comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that's true. Because our view of God affects everything about how we live. If, even if that view of God means that I don't believe there's a God, it affects how we live, how we think, how we treat other people, what we do. Everything about life is wrapped up in our view of God. William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, once said that if you have a wrong concept of God... The more religion you get, the more dangerous you become to yourselves and to others. And I think we've seen that in the history of people, of human beings. And it goes back to our view of God. If our view of God is correct, it's biblical, it's right, then it leads to the kind of behavior that pleases God and looks like God. But if our view of God is warped and corrupted and twisted, then it leads us in directions that are away from who God is and what God desires for his people and for the world. And I think we see something of the, the sense of who God is and, and of what God's kingdom is about in this story that we've read this morning. It's the first miracle, John tells us, that Jesus performs. John calls it the first sign. There are seven signs in John's gospel that he points out. And this is the first one. This is very early on, one of the first things of Jesus' ministry. And, and we have here this image. of As you get to verse 11, John says that the disciples saw the glory of Jesus and they believed in him. Now, I've read that, and I'm thinking to myself, what is it about this story that causes the disciples to believe? I mean, it's a, it's a nice story, and, you know, it's a fascinating story. And, but what exactly here would lead them to say, I've just seen what Jesus did, turning water into wine, and now we believe? And I think when they talk about them believing, I don't think they, quite, they understand everything, of course, because we'll see that as the 
as the story progresses. But there's something about this event that causes the disciples to say we're all in for Jesus as much as we know. We, some of us have just decided to say, yeah, let's follow him. And now we're saying, let's really follow him. And there's something here about this miracle that, that reveals the glory of Jesus, which is another way of saying, I think, the, the character, the nature of God and of his kingdom. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, what we're really talking about is the nature of God. The kingdom is a reflection of God. Who he is, what he does, what his priorities are, what his designs are. And somehow in this miracle, Jesus reveals the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the nature of God, who God is. So what is it that we see here about God in this story? What is it about the kingdom that Jesus reveals? I think in the simplest of terms, Jesus is, is telling us that, that the kingdom of God is about him being interested and involved in the commonness of our lives. The kingdom is about Jesus being interested and involved in in the commonness of our lives, in the very common activities like a wedding celebration. I think in our minds we know that, but sometimes it doesn't actually get to how we live and, and, and our hearts. There is something in us that believes that the kingdom is about big things, extraordinary things. And when we think about the kingdom, we're looking for magnificent kinds of things to happen. We're looking for for things that are extraordinary. And while that is certainly true, the kingdom is about the commonness of life. God in the everyday of life. I think sometimes we wrestle with that because there's a part of us that, that wants to believe that, you know, that we're looking... We're looking for those extraordinary things. But the other part of it that makes us a little bit hesitant to really embrace that is because if that is true, then that means that our lives are continually accountable to God. There really is no such thing as sacred and secular when you talk about the kingdom. All of it is sacred. Every moment, God is present. God is at work. God is interested. God is doing things. And it means that everything in our lives is important to God. So how we pray, it means that when we pray, we're not just praying about the big things, we're praying about everything. Sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, God doesn't have time for that stuff. God God has got more important things to deal with. He's got to deal with wars and terrorism and, and elections and all these kinds of big things. He doesn't have time for the little stuff. And I know we would argue with that, but when it comes to practice, do we argue with that? But one of the things that Jesus is telling us here is that God is interested in the commonness of life. God is present in every moment of life. Whatever we're doing, wherever we are, The kingdom of God is not just for the things that we do that we call spiritual. It's about every moment, everything. It's really what Brother Lawrence was talking about when he talked about practicing the presence of God. When you're peeling potatoes, God is present. When you're exercising, God is present. When you're sitting around the table, God is present. When you're sitting at a desk, when you're standing in front of people, we're out in a field, whatever it is we're doing, God is present. And those moments are our spiritual kingdom moments. Nothing too small, nothing too trivial. You know, the, There's a story of Yogi Berra when he was a catcher for the Yankees, you know, back in the 50s. If you watch baseball much, now you know that a number, there are a number of players who 
before they step into the batter's box, will make the sign of the cross. And uh, I don't know exactly what that means, but I think they, it helps them. They feel like it helps them. And, but they didn't do that as much back then, but one of the guy's players would draw a cross in the dirt by home plate. And Yogi Bear was behind home plate catching one day, and the guy reached, went up and did that, and he reached over with his glove and he wiped it out. This guy's looking at him like, what are you doing? And Yogi said to him, hey, let's let God watch this one today. And, you know, there is something in our minds that is thinking, you know, there are things that, you know, God, God doesn't care. And I'm not sure God cares about winning or losing things, but I do know that God does care about how we respond to the winning and the losing of things. And God is in those moments about how we are acting, how we're living, what we're doing in the midst of things. Because in the kingdom, there really is nothing trivial God's present in all of it. Even a wedding celebration. It's a great story. You know, there's so many human nuances to this story. I've been trying to go through my mind about, you know, what exactly to to talk about the story. Because there's a lot of different ways you could go. But isn't it fascinating? in In the first century Palestine weddings, they usually would last for probably about five days to a week. And there was this big party just going on and on and on. And, um, and, and the, of course, the, the bride and groom, they, they were hosting the party and you know, they were supplying everything. And so you come to this event. And we don't know, I don't know exactly why Mary is in charge of the wine. I, I suspect, there's a part of me that wants to believe that this is because this is a family member. Maybe even a sibling of Jesus. A younger sister, younger brother, getting married, which is maybe why Mary's there and Jesus is there and Mary's in charge of the wine and why she is going to do something about it. And so she turns to Jesus. And I don't think Mary's expecting Jesus to do a miracle. I don't think that has got onto her radar yet. I, I, I suspect, I wonder, if most scholars believe that by this time Joseph is probably no longer living. And so that would make Jesus the head of the home. And if Mary, if this is a family member's wedding and Mary's in charge of the party, when there's a problem, who do you turn to? You turn to the head of the home, and that would be Jesus. And I wonder if she doesn't go to Jesus simply because, look, this is your role. This is what you're supposed to do. Fix this. And Jesus says, that's not really my thing right now. Now, when he responds to her and he says, woman, that appears to us to be disrespectful. But it's not. You know, he's not saying to her, woman, leave me alone. In that tone of voice. Because sometimes you read it that way, right? Come on, you know that. You read it like, ugh. That's the same word that Jesus uses later in John's gospel when he's hanging on the cross. And he looks down at his mother, he looks down at John, and he says, woman, here is your son. It's a term of respect. Compassion. But he says to her, this is not... It's not my thing to do. And I love Mary's response. She just sort of ignores his answer and says to the servants, well, just do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Okay. Now, I guess I've I've decided that you never stop being the mother of your children and you never stop being the children of your mother, right? Now, Jesus says, it's not my time yet. I don't know exactly what that means. When Jesus talks about his time, usually it refers to revealing himself as the Messiah. And it isn't until the 12th chapter of John that he says, okay, now it's time. And he's turned and set his face toward Jerusalem. And at that moment, there's about a week left in his life. All the, all the, uh, the experiences are culminating. Everything is culminating into this moment when he's about to go to the cross. And I think one of the reasons he doesn't reveal so much of himself is because he, he knows that people are going to misinterpret what it means for him to be the Messiah. He's come to be the humble Messiah who goes to the cross. They want him to be this powerful Messiah who crushes the Romans. And that's not why he comes. And so to reveal that too early is going to be difficult. And so he's continually saying, not my time, not my time. And then you get to chapter 12, and now it's the time. And he says, it's not the time. But at the same time, if I don't think Jesus is saying, I'm not really supposed to do this. 
The father doesn't want me to do this miracle right now because he does the miracle. And that would be disobedience. And so that's not what's going on. Part of me wonders if Jesus isn't sitting there thinking, I'm not really sure that the first miracle I do is going to be here in this setting at a wedding. Shouldn't it be something a little more spiritually connected? I don't know. Whatever the, whatever the, the reason for him saying that, he goes ahead and does the miracle anyway. And what it tells us is not only that the nature of the kingdom that Jesus reveals is that God's present and active in all the commonness of our lives, it also tells us that he is Lord over all creation. Ruler over all things. This is what John is telling us at the very beginning of his gospel. When he says, and the word was God and the word was with God. And God, he created all things through him. He was there at creation. He created, he is the creator, the Lord of all things. It's what Paul writes to the, to the Colossians. When he says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. And as much as this miracle is telling us that the the kingdom is about God involved in the commonness of our lives, in the every moment of our lives, it is also declaring that that same God rules over all of life. He is present and he is in control. And in the moments when we struggle with life, one thing we know is that God is still Lord of all. That Jesus has come to help us understand that no matter what we're facing, no matter how small or big the struggles, He is present and He's at work. And He is greater than any of the stuff that we face. It's interesting to me in this story that you you have a a nuance of the of the rule of Christ here, and gives us a little glimpse of the kingdom. The whole thing about the signs in the Old Testament, the signs were were about uh, not just what was happening, but what was going to happen. And when Jesus reveals the nature of the kingdom here, he is in essence telling us this is what the kingdom ultimately, the eternal kingdom will look like. And here we get a little glimpse of that. And one of the glimpses we get is that he is Lord of all. And that we get a glimpse of the kingdom as with Jesus as Lord. The kingdom is not about stinginess and scarcity. It's about abundance. And I think we miss that sometimes. I think we think, you know, we have to pry Blessings out of God. We have to pry good things out of God. When all the while he is, he is pouring out abundant blessings on us far more than we ever ask or imagine. I mean, they come to Jesus and say we need some more wine. And it's in essence as someone said to me this week. It's in essence as if Jesus says you want wine? I'll give you wine. How about 180 gallons of wine? You know it. it He could have just given them a little bit. That's all you're going to need. That's enough. He gives them far more than they could ever use. And the kingdom is about abundance. John says in chapter 1, 
In verse 16, he says, From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Abundance. That's what Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, my prayer for you is that you will know how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that you will experience God's abundant grace that is above and beyond what you can dream or imagine. The kingdom is not about stinginess or scarcity. It's abundance. And instead of being afraid to to trust God for more, we have a tendency to think, I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to ask too much. So, you know, I don't know what, I don't know how God feels about this. So I'm going to, I better just hold it back. And what ends up happening is we start living our lives with a sense of scarcity and stinginess. Because again, our view of God is the most important thing about us. And if our view of God is that he and his kingdom are are about stinginess and scarcity, then we'll live our lives that way too. Because we're never quite sure if God will be enough. Instead of being generous because God is generous, we hoard because we think That's the way God is. And I have found the people who are the most generous people are the people who believe that God is the most generous God. And when you give and give and give, God will supply. He is good. See, that sense of scarcity causes us to live in fear. And living in a spirit of fear is is always going to be detrimental to our our lives and our walk with God. It's not about fear. It's about abundance and trust. And when you believe that God in the kingdom is about abundance, then you begin to see why Jesus' first miracle is in the middle of this big celebration. It's so fascinating to me that John has these seven signs and all the other, six, the other six signs are about miracles that Jesus does in healing people. You know, the blind man, who, the man blind from birth, is now see. The man who has been lame for all of his life now walks. And it's about feeding the 5,000 from just a little boy's lunch. And then, the, then you get to chapter 11, and the last sign is the resurrection of Lazarus. I mean, these are big signs. But the first one. The first one's about a celebration, a wedding. I have a feeling there are, well, I know there are, there are some Christians that I have encountered through the years who really wish this story wasn't in the Scripture. You know, they have an issue about, you know, Jesus turning water into wine. And, and then it just, because the bottom line is what Jesus does. He says, look, the party's kind of winding down. Let's build this thing back up again. That's, that's what Jesus does. I mean, really, he's saying, let's get the party going, people. Come on. And there's a part of us that feels like that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like Jesus, right? But it's here. I mean, that's the whole point. Because if the wine runs out, the party's done. And Jesus is about celebrations. Too often, and again, I think it's because we, have, we, we forget that he's Lord over all things. When we forget that, we start feeling like we, we, you know, we, we, have, like we have to live our lives with this sense of protection and, and the sense of caution instead of the freedom of celebration. You know, we're really good in the evangelical church with lament and seriousness, and there's good to that. We need sometimes to lament, and we need to be serious. But I'm not so sure we're good at celebrating. And what fascinates me is that when we get to the end of Revelation, and John is describing what heaven is like, one of the primary images he says is it's a wedding feast. 
It is this huge celebration. And if that's what the kingdom is then, and we are praying for the kingdom of heaven to be seen on earth, then celebration should be a part of what we, how we live here. How we live our faith. It doesn't mean that we act as if life has no problems, because life has lots of problems. There are all kinds of struggles that we live with. But in the midst of those, underlying all of that is this confidence that Jesus is Lord. And even in the midst of our struggles and our problems, Jesus is Lord. That changes how we view the struggles and the problems. And we come to those things with a sense of trust. That he's in control. That he's good. That he's gracious and merciful. And even when the things don't work out the way we want them to, he's still Lord. He's still in control. And it changes the way we live. It's not a coincidence that the jars Jesus tells them to put the water in are the jars for ceremonial washing. These, what happens when people come to something like a wedding or somebody's house, they've been walking on dusty roads and sandals and so their feet are a mess and so they have these jars sitting there and as people walk in, they pour water over their feet and then there's this hand-washing ritual that before you eat, there is, a, there is this, this way of holding your hands out and pouring the water down your arm so that it runs off your fingers. And... You do that before you eat, and you do that between every course of the meal. And you can understand why you want to do that, to clean your hands up a little bit. But it became more than just a a cleansing ritual. It became something that connected people to to God. Jesus gets in trouble in a couple of places in the Gospels because his disciples don't wash their hands the way they're supposed to. And that's not because people are afraid of germs. It's because they're not doing the ritual right. And if you don't do the ritual right, then God doesn't accept you. It's one of the things that it means, one of the ways that you, you uh, tell people, you, you live out your life of following God. You do the rituals right. And Jesus is sending, I think, a message. Let's pour the water into these pots. Let's do something with these things. We're gonna, because I'm here to give you a new image of the kingdom. And it's not about rituals, it's not about legalism, it's not about confining, it's about freedom. It's about celebration, it's about abundance. It's about relationship. And there's something in that that act that reveals the bigness, the freedom, the nature of God in his kingdom. So what is it, when we read this story, what is it God is asking of us? I think two things. I think he's calling us to live our lives with an openness to his presence in the everyday commonness of our lives. It's about living in the kingdom in every single moment. Looking for him anticipating him, thinking about him in every single moment of our lives, from the most extraordinary to the most ordinary. And I think the second thing is to live our lives in such a way that we believe that the God who cares about every single small moment of life is Lord of all of those moments. That he is greater than the burdens and the struggles and the difficulties that we're facing. And that we've decided, like the disciples, we're going to believe in him. We're going to trust him. And when things turn out great, wonderful. And if they don't, we still trust him. Because we believe that he is who he says he is. That the kingdom is what he tells us the kingdom is. And we've decided to be all in with Jesus. Go back to what Tozer said. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing 
about us. So, what comes to our minds when we think about God? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what we see of your kingdom in this story, what we see of you. And what we hear you calling us to be. Give us grace, Father, to see you in every moment. And to trust you in every moment. We pray this through Christ, who is Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing together. You have given us a new name, the sons and daughters of your righteousness. You have taken all of us.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.